I think what it's really done is it demonstrated that the kind of cultural wars that are being fought within our society are not just simply about words. They're not just simply about uh, innocent statements, you know, debates and arguments. They are fundamentally have a, an impact that can have very significant and very dangerous uh, physical consequences. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Frank Ferradi. Frank, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be talking to you. It's great to have you back on. As you know, I want you on to talk about Israel and Gaza and the West and the events of the past two weeks or so. At the time we're speaking, it's more than two weeks since the atrocities in southern Israel when Hamas launched the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust, killing around 1,400 people. And lots of events have happened subsequent to that, including a war in Gaza and a, a very serious clash between Israel and Hamas. The other thing we've seen, and I know that you've written a lot about this, and we've been thinking a lot about it at Spiked as well, is, is the response from certain quarters in the West, which to say it has been morally lacking would be an understatement. Uh, we've seen some very questionable placards on demonstrations. We've seen people being unwilling to give a full-throated denunciation of Hamas, being very unwilling to stand with Israel at this incredibly difficult time. It's been a very curious and concerning response from many in the West. So I want to kick off with a, I guess, with a broad question. Have you been shocked or disturbed by the events of the past two weeks, and especially the way in which some people over here have responded to the tragedies in Israel? I must say I have been disturbed. I don't usually get shocked because I'm fairly cynical and I've been watching things unfold for a while, so I expect bad things to happen. But I was genuinely shocked by the way in which people who ought to know better have distanced themselves from the conflict and also the large number of people who have taken a, a decision to either remain neutral in this dispute or alternatively to fully support Hamas and uh, the anti-Israeli sentiment that's come to the surface uh, over the last couple of weeks in Europe, in particular, but also elsewhere, has been uh, has been a real revelation. Because I kind of suspected that this anti-Semitism that's entwined with anti-Zionism was a very real phenomenon. But when you see it full-blown in its current uh, sort of context, you realize that this has become very hardened. And the situation is indeed very, very difficult, very dangerous. You and I have both been writing about the questionable nature of so-called anti-Zionism for quite some time now, for 15, 20 years or, or perhaps even longer. But even I have been shocked by the intensity of the response and the cynicism of the response and the glaring lack of moral clarity in the way in which many people in the West have responded to the events uh, in, in southern Israel in particular. You mentioned there, let's get right into the discussion about anti-Semitism, I think. You mentioned there that there is this anti-Zionism that actually is a species of anti-Semitism. Now, you, you will know that's a controversial thing to say. People will often say, listen, criticizing Israel does not mean hating the Jews. Criticizing Zionism does not mean criticizing uh, Judaism or the Jewish people. How do you respond to that? It seems to me to be an increasingly untenable argument. Uh, but what's your response when people say that? Well, you know, in the abstract, you can criticize anything and you can have a strong views about any phenomenon and say, well, I'm not very happy with what Israel is doing. I don't think that Zionism is an ideology that I can support. I think that's quite a legitimate standpoint. But in a sense, what has happened is that in the last 20, 25 years, anti-Zionism has come to me not being against Zionism, as such, it's not an ideological project. It, it doesn't simply me mean being against the political ideals that Israel stands for. Increasingly, anti-Zionism has become a medium through which people are given a, given permission to uh, essentially uh, raise raise uh, ideals that are classically associated with anti-Jewish sentiments. And I think what has happened is that in the last twenty twenty five years, but especially in the in, in recent years anti-Semitism has become much more acceptable because what, what has happened with, within anti, in the anti-Zionist uh, project 
is an attempt to essentially turn around the, the, the status and the, and the image of what a Jew is, so that the Jew, as a victim of the Holocaust, has been, in a sense, uh, transformed into the Jewish person who is now the main symbol of a new Holocaust, so that the Jews are responsible for uh, something very similar to what the Germans did to them in the Second World War, and in this sense, the Jews have lost their moral status. And not only that, but of course, sections of, uh, of European society are being relieved of, of their guilt. Because if Jews can be as bad as the Germans were in the Second World War, then of course, they have no special claim to any kind of moral status. And in fact, then it normalizes what the Germans and the other people did to the Jews between 1938, 39, and 1945. Yeah, that is such an important point. And I think one of the things I've been most disturbed by in the response to what happened to Israel on the 7th of October, the speed and the intensity with which um, the Nazi comparisons were made this time around. I mean, it happened very quickly. It, you see it on, on all the demonstrations in Europe, essentially, including the one that we had in London last Saturday, there were placards saying the Zionists are the new Nazis or showing Hitler's face morphing into ben Benjamin Netanyahu's face. Of course, there were blood-stained banners saying, you know, uh, the Jews are now doing to the Palestinians what the Germans did to the Jews. I mean, it's it's constant now. You see it all the time. And you even see it at a much lower level, a kind of unspoken level, in the way in which I think the media holds the Jewish state to a very interesting standard in terms of constantly badgering it about the rules of war, about human rights law, essentially about the global legislations that were in, in large part brought in after the Second World War in response in, in, in many ways to the uh, Nazi attempt to destroy the Jews. The media will often wield those laws and those rules and those regulations against Israel more than against any other state. So you see it at that low level too. How much of a historical turnaround do you think this represents? You talked there about how this serves to remove the moral status of the Jewish people. Do you think it tells us something important about how the West is trying to absolve itself of responsibility in some ways for its own crimes of the past by now deflecting these things onto Israel? Well, you know, you've got to have a historical context because I'm old enough to remember when the Jews were seen as being possessors of a real moral authority. They were the ones that suffered from this unique crisis and there was no no doubt about the fact in people's minds that because of the experience of the Holocaust, the Jewish uh, uh, sort of experience was unique and something that people had to take very seriously and, uh, and understand that this must never be repeated. And therefore, it was very fashionable to say never again uh, in relation to this whole experience. Now, things have altered. And I think there's a number of developments that have occurred. I think one of the things that has occurred is that with the uh, growing Islamic influence in the West, mainly through migration, there's been a new source of uh, hostility towards Jews, different kind of anti-Semitism that's uh, more of a Middle Eastern variety, which has you know, been very, very unapologetic in terms of its denunciation of the Jews and in terms of uh, representing Jews as being this uh, um, very negative, hostile, destructive force in the Middle East. In a sense, they are the West, but even worse than, worse than the West, because they are like the hyper-representation of a, of a white Western worldview. So that was one element. But the other element that's been really quite important has been the gradual emergence of, of identity politics. And within identity politics, you had both uh, an impulse towards uh, unleashing a competition for who's the most important historical victim. And it's almost as if all the different identity groups regard Jewish identity as the main obstacle to their own advance and had a common interest in sidelining uh, the unique status of Jewish identity and undermine it and criticize it. And that began to occur. But then a third thing occurred, which further reinforced this, which is the theory of decolonization, acquired a tremendous amount of influence within the universities. And the decolonization promoters recast Jewish people into the role of the almighty European settler oppressors who are, in a sense, legitimate targets of any kind of violence because they apparently are responsible for all the oppression that is not taking place throughout the globe. So uh, what the decolonization theory did was essentially to normalize anti-Jewish violence 
as not only uh, okay and legitimate, but almost as a holy, uh, sacred duty that people need to back and support. And when you think of these three different strands all coming together, it, it has led to a situation where some people can deflect the blame for the Holocaust by saying the Jews are probably uh, as bad as anybody else's. So why are they you know, going on about Auschwitz all the time? And also at the same time, it's given Islamists a common cause to fight for. And uh, Islamists are delighted by the fact that all these different Western European identity groups, you know, from feminists to LGBTQ uh, sort of advocates, come and join them under, under their wing and giving them a lot of moral authority. And it's almost as if they're all kind of ganging up upon the one hyper threat to the Western and global way of life, which is, which is Judaism uh, in, in general and Israel in particular. Yeah, that's a really important point. I think those three strands are very useful for understanding the re-emergence of anti-Semitism or the intensification of it in this new way. I did want to ask you about one of them in particular, which was the decolonization ideology. I think you've written about that recently on your Substack. You know, what does decolonization really mean? And we all saw those tweets, you know, after the massacres in southern Israel where people were saying, well, what did you think decolonization meant? Uh, so there was, you know, they, they may have been just a handful of tweets, really, but they did express a broader sentiment, which is that people looked at this event in southern Israel where Hamas was carrying out extreme violence against uh, Israeli, mostly Jewish civilians, they looked at it and thought, this is what decolonization is. This is what we meant. And in your Substack piece, you, you made the point that decolonization is clearly something very different from anti-colonialism in the past or anti-colonial struggles that took place around the world in the past. You make the point that decolonization can mean everything from, you know, changing the curriculum at a university to changing the names of streets in your local town that you don't like right through to justifying barbaric slaughter of Jewish people. That's that's the situation we've arrived at. So just dig into the decolonization thing a little bit. What do you think is, is the imperative behind decolonization? Why has it become a rallying cry on lots of different issues for an influential section in Western society? Well, the new idea of decolonization, which has got nothing to do with colonies, emanates from this very profound sense of hatred, self-hatred, for anything that's Western. And that's why you have to decolonize the curriculum, decolonize the city, decolonize the museums, anything that bears the uh, sort of uh, the legacy of Western civilization becomes a target of hatred in a sense. Somehow it is seen as being a bearer of shame and horror in, in the past. Now, in relation to Israel, the issue of decolonization takes on a particularly pernicious form because what decolonization does is it dehumanizes totally dehumanizes anybody that represents the West or, or personifies the West. And Jews in Israel are seen as, as this kind of hyper-personification of Westernism. And therefore, they are not regarded as, as human beings. They're regarded as, as people who are uh, legitimate targets of any form of violence. Now, one of the important things about decolonization theory in, in relation to Israel is that violence is seen as legitimate, it's, you know, it's Israel is asking for it. And the reason why it's legitimate is because the people that are committing the violence uh, in their eyes have borne uh, oppression so long that their mental health, their self-esteem has been damaged by Israelis and by Jews and by the West. And therefore, from their point of view, being violent is almost like a therapeutic impulse where they basically are able to restore their mental health, they're able to restore their self-esteem by adverse violence against their oppressors. So that's why it's the case that you know, many people who are promoting uh, decolonization actually use terms like cleansing, almost like you're cleansing the soul, and also cleansing the world from these horrible individuals who have, uh, in a sense, created such problems for your mental health. So in their eyes, what, you know, when they watch young girls and young men who are dancing in a music festival being slaughtered and barbarically raped and killed, in their eyes, they just see that as being a, almost like a, an enactment of a, of a therapeutic uh, situation. They don't see violence in the way that you and I or any normal person would, 
would see it as something that's a horrific uh, sort of scene. In their eyes, this is pretty much acceptable because it's the, the good guys who are going to become mentally uh, sort of sound as a result of uh, finding an outlet for their outrage. Hi, it's Brendan here. I'm really thrilled to announce that the sponsor for this week's episode is Beckett's Gin. Beckett's is a fantastic company that prides itself on using the best quality local ingredients to produce some truly superb tasting gin. Lately, I've been loving Beckett's barrel aged slow gin. This is a new addition to their lineup and I can highly recommend giving it a try. Beckett's have rested their classic slow gin in bourbon oak barrels for three years, leaving behind rich notes of caramel, vanilla and coffee. And with the sweet flavours of cherry, plum and almond, this is definitely going to be my go-to drink as the weather gets colder. If you're looking for a solid drinks cupboard staple, you should definitely pick up a bottle of Beckett's London Dry Gin. It is incredibly refreshing and aromatic, made with juniper berries hand-picked in Box Hill in Surrey. I've been enjoying the London dry gin as a classic G&T, but it is also perfect for putting in cocktails. In fact, why not take a look at the Beckett's website and try some of their bespoke cocktail recipes. And if you're stuck for Christmas presents this year, Beckett's gin is here to help. Their miniatures variety gift set is the ideal present and a great way to sample all their gins. The set includes miniatures of their London dry gin, slow gin and spirited gin. It is the perfect gift for family or friends or even for yourself if you want to give them all a try. And here's the best part. Listeners to this podcast can get a 20% discount on all the products I've mentioned here and more. Just head over to beckettsgin.co.uk slash Brendan to claim your discount. That's B-E-C-K-E-T-T-S-G-I-N co.uk slash Brendan to get 20% off. Beckettsgin.co.uk slash Brendan. Yeah, I did want to ask you about the dehumanization of the people of Israel, because that has been a very striking element of the, some of the discussion over the past couple of weeks. You know, we've seen it right from those Nazi scumbags outside the Sydney Opera House who were openly saying gas the Jews. I mean, that's the most explicit expression of this. But you see it right through to, you know, the much more supposedly intellectual discussion of Israelis as colonial settlers, as you say. You know, they are the archetypal colonial settlers. They're the worst kind. They don't belong on this land, really. They've stole it in the 1940s. And therefore, they are not real civilians. I mean, people have openly said these aren't real civilians. They're they're settlers. And that's a different level of human being, a much lower level of human being. They're talked about almost as subhuman. And there's a twisted dark irony to this, which is that you have these people who fancy themselves as decolonizers, although you've just pointed out decolonization has nothing to do with colonies as we would have understood them in the past. But they fancy themselves as anti-racist, as decolonizers, as people who are challenging um, white supremacy or whatever else they might, however else they might put it. But they actually deploy these kind of neo-fascistic strategies of dehumanization, especially against um, Jewish people in in Israel, the Jewish civilians of Israel. How how bad do you think that treatment of Israel as a kind of subhuman country has become? And and what are the possibilities that that's going to leak more and more into the West, and that Jews over here will likewise be seen as legitimate targets for violent decolonization? Well, you you raise a very important question because. Sometimes I have to, you know, sort of take a deep breath and ask myself, do they really know what they're doing? You know, when they're looking at some babies being killed, which is quite exceptional, most people don't go around killing babies and most people don't treat bodies the way that uh, Hamas has done. When they see that, what do they see? What is the image? You know, what does that uh, signify for them? Because I find it very difficult to understand that they can switch off like that and almost smile and, and celebrate the fact that these people who they don't call civilians uh, have been slaughtered in a, in a most brutal uh, kind of fashion. And sometimes I got to say, to my, is, is this, you know, have they become so desensitized, you know, because of their dehumanization of, of Jewish people that they don't really see what's really going on? Or maybe this is just a temporary phenomenon. Maybe they're going to wake up one day from this dreadful, uh, sort of state that they've been in and, and, and realize just how horrible uh, their reaction has been. 
But I've I've drawn the conclusion that in the in the world that we live in now, these different these three strands of hatred for Jews uh, coming together, converging together, have gained a fair degree of definition. They it's acquired a, a, a really strong force within many societies. It's it led to a situation where very often, you know, sort of it, it makes it impossible even to discuss the question with people who who regard Jewish people in this kind of dehumanized kind of way. There's no real point of contact in that discussion. So I think under those circumstances, unless there is a dramatic reversal in the cowardice of a lot of people who are keeping quiet, who are keeping their counsel and aren't prepared to back up and defend Jewish people, unless that occurs, I think this kind of sentiment can harden and can gain a, a tremendous amount of force, particularly because it attracts young people. A lot of young, for a, young, a lot of young people who don't know any better, this kind of reaction, this kind of way of behaving is seen as being really cool. You know, it's, it's really the way you got to be if you want to be in with the in crowd. So there's a kind of culture that's being built around it. And I think we're still in a very early stage of that culture. But unless something dramatic is done to expose its dehumanizing, you know, sort of uh, oppressive kind of features, I do worry about the future of Jewish society in Europe, um, and in fact, in, in most most bits of the world. I want to come back to the question of Jews in Europe and what we need to do to offer them solidarity. But for the time being, I want to stick with this question of violence and this perverse pleasure, I guess, or at least a willful acceptance of the violence that was visited upon the Israelis on the 7th of October. There's a contradiction here. I mean, it's probably not a contradiction at all, but I, I would like to tease it out, which is that this kind of acceptance of that violence, as as you say, a kind of therapeutic initiative by the oppressed members of Hamas against the people who have been so thoroughly dehumanized that it doesn't matter if they are killed. It doesn't matter if they are raped doesn't matter if they're burnt alive or whatever, you know, that they probably were asking for it. The weird thing is that a lot of those sentiments are coming from the kind of people who will say things like, silence is violence. So if you don't line up behind them 100% on the Black Lives Matter issue, for example, if you, or if you stay silent, that's a form of violence. That's a form of tyranny that's really going to hurt them. We know that they often treat words as violence. You know, these are the kind of people who think that if you stop a man in a dress from going into a woman's toilet, you're enacting a trans genocide, right? And then when actual genocidal terrorists kill more than a thousand people, they march on the streets and wave the the flags and, and chant the slogans of the people who did the killing. How do you explain that? Where on the one hand, you have these people who are incredibly sensitive, have this kind of psychic sensitivity to words that they presume are going to have a violent impact on their lives. And then their much more relaxed approach to real violence enacted against what they call settlers, but the rest of us would call civilians. I think that a lot of these people suffer from a kind of collective narcissism, which basically means that anything that they themselves find uncomfortable, even minimally uncomfortable, they will immediately uh, recast in a very dramatic language of this is violent. And that is why, you know, they can have such silly in fact, idiotic uh, sort of metaphors that silence is violence. As if, you know, what they really mean is that because I'm not hearing what I want to hear, and that makes me uncomfortable, therefore this is violence. So when you got this kind of deeply entrenched sense of narcissism, which is then culturally affirmed in, in, in the way that society works today, it has this double effect that you yourself imagine that you're super sensitive to all the problems of the world basically really means that you're super sensitive to things that directly affect you as an individual. But at the same time, because so much of your psychic uh, sensibility is focused directly on yourself, it's very much, you know, sort of linked to your momentary feelings, you become really unaware of what's happening to other people. And particularly to people that in, in any case you become psychically distanced from who you regard as being almost your moral opposites. You're, you're the good guys, they're the bad guys. So under those circumstances, you do not really uh, see uh, the beheadings, the, the, the rape or the killing of children as being violent in the way that normal human beings would historically and, and 
thankfully even to today. So something very deep, deeply dramatic and disturbing has happened to these people, which makes them incapable of the kind of limited empathy that uh, one is one is accustomed to. I mean, even I suppose even some concentration camp guards in the past would have had a degree of empathy or uh, this kind of bad feeling about what they saw. They didn't just, you know, kind of, it wasn't like it kind of passed them by. Whereas in this particular case, there's almost like a, a, a self-conscious, and, but also an unconscious process whereby you really are not seeing what's, what's in front of your eyes, but only you, you kind of project on, onto the scene on a, on a TV screen or onto the situation in southern Israel, your own fantasy world. Yeah, it's it's so true. And and one of the things that I have found particularly disturbing was the instant reaction to 7th of October. So, you know, lots of people have written about the, the reaction. You had, you know, one of the editors at Navarra Media refer to it as a, a day of celebration. Uh, there was a headline in the Socialist Worker newspaper that said this is an event that people should rejoice. That Cornell professor has gone viral saying that he found it an invigorating event. He, he, it made him feel alive. We've seen a lot of that, which is, you know, in, incredibly disturbing. Some people have tried to walk back their comments, um, but the fact that that was their response to such a horrific historic event, I think is incredibly telling. What we said on Spike, while the event was still happening, when, when, the, when the known death toll was, was just 20 people, uh, we refer to it on Spike as a pogrom against Israel. You've, you also refer to it as the excusable pogrom, the justifiable pogrom. Uh, Rishi Sunak later also referred to it as a pogrom, and, and he, he got a lot of flack from people, you know, how dare you use such a loaded term, as if, you know, the problem was him referring it to a, as a pogrom rather than the fact that Hamas did it. Those historical terms can be useful, can't they? I mean, as you've just said, anti-Semitism changes over time, and the, the factors influencing it today are different to the factors that influenced it in the past. But it is useful to draw some of the historical threads between Jew hatred, even if it expresses itself differently in different eras. Yeah, I think so, especially that, uh, thankfully, that there has been no pogroms really since the Second World War. And uh, fortunately, it's been a very rare phenomenon. But also a pogrom is, is something that is very, very rare. So you do have a, a illustrations, unfortunately, of ethnic cleansing in other parts of the world now, now and again. But what you don't have, and this is what makes this particular pogrom particularly disturbing, is the self-conscious attempt to um, promote it and, and in, a, in a visual way to kind of, uh, uh, in a sense, boast about it. Because usually people that commit ethnic cleansing or, or acts of pogrom usually deny it. They basically say it wasn't ethnic cleansing or they basically say, no, no, there wasn't any uh, attempt to kill civilian people. They might say it's collateral damage or they might deny it happening altogether. But in this instance, what you had was not just a pogrom, but almost like, you know, here, here's the video, you know, watch us. I mean, I always remember this particular scene, which haunts me all the time, when you got these Hamas fighters uh, and they have all these young Israeli hostage children around, and one, one of them sitting on, on, on a rifle and, and the Hamas fighter is beaming, you know, smiling. And they think this is really a wonderful image to, you know, sort of, circulate around the world. They're really proud of the fact that they managed to capture these you know, toddlers and are, are, are kind of imprisoning them. And here you have something which is, you know, like this, it's very, very unusual sort of situation where you have a, we have a pogrom, you know, in, in full-blown color, you know, on, on social media everywhere, uh, which has never happened before. It, it simply hasn't really happened. Usually when you commit an atrocity, you hide it. You buried the bodies and you pretend you weren't even there. But in this case, you have something, something very special. And the very fact that this visual act of barbarism was held to a very different account than it would have been in the past, almost as if you're watching a snuff movie rather than a, rather than a real life destruction of people is to me uh, a very, very new development uh, and, and tells us that something very deeply disturbing is going on within the Western world. Yeah. Following on from that, I did want to ask you about the relationship between Hamas and, I mean, useful idiots 
isn't even the right term in the West because it's something a bit more sinister than that. But the relationship between Hamas and then what what I think Hamas predicted would happen, which is that huge numbers of influencers and lovies and so-called progressives have come out onto the streets over the past two weeks to condemn Israel, to slam Israel, to to offer either an open justification or a kind of underhand justification for what happened on the 7th of October. And the fact that Hamas filmed large parts of its pogrom and put them on Telegram, the, the kind of social media page. One thing I saw, which I found deeply disturbing, was Hamas terrorists walking down the street in a kibbutz and just shooting into windows. And so they shot an old man who was in his living room. They shot an old lady who was in her kitchen. I mean, just, and they filmed all of it and put it online. I mean, really staggering stuff, almost like they were feeding an appetite um, elsewhere for gruesome images of decolonization of, you know, the punishment of these of these non-civilians. How do you imagine the relationship between Hamas and activists or protesters or thinkers in the West who've responded to Hamas's atrocity in, in, a, in a very questionable, I would say, immoral way? Do you think there is a, I mean, it's not a conscious relationship, but there is a connection between those two things, isn't there? Yeah, there is. So if we take a step back and we look at this whole thing abstractly, Hamas playing to the gallery, which is what they're doing, the gallery being essentially uh, very trendy cosmopolitan influencers, people on the social media and elsewhere. In terms of making a moral judgment, you almost have got to say that the, the gallery is worse than Hamas. I know it's a, it sounds like a, a bit of a stretch, but in many ways, the gallery, the, the people who are inciting and uh, enjoying and, and living vicariously these acts of violence are worse, you know, sort of for a number of reasons than the horrific, you know, barbaric individuals who are doing the killing. Now, you kind of think about what's really going on here because it is more than just a symbiotic relationship. It is more than just the fact that these two strands of these two movements are feeding off each other. I actually think that when you think about it, Hamas in its present form is almost like the creation of the West rather than just merely an Islamic organization because it may have certain origins you know, within the Middle East landscape and it may be getting you know, sort of support from Iran and you know, various kind of uh, Middle East Islamist quarters. But in terms of its behavior, it's, it's basically uh, has embraced all the different dimensions of, of the victim identity politics uh, that is per, that pervades particularly the anglo-american world and they kind of made it into their own so you know when they think about their image when they think about what they're doing they're no longer simply just the middle eastern islamist groups you know who are saying allah akbar and all that kind of stuff they are also uh, sort of uh, part and parcel of that identity group alliance that identity culture which is made in the West. So I think that's important to bear in mind that we're not, we're not watching here a, a Middle East, uh, simply a, a narrow Middle East phenomenon. We're seeing something that's got deep connections with Western uh, sort of subcultures of various sorts. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable, and I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Yeah, it's such an important point. And, you know, in France, they refer to the Islamo left, you know, the left that has uh, made a, a, a devil's bargain with Islamist groups. And, and you know, we've seen a similar uh, dynamic in the UK as well in recent years, especially over the past two weeks, in fact, where the big demonstrations for Palestine, in quote marks, really they're against Israel, um, have been a mishmash of, you know, left-wingers, uh, radicals and Islamists chanting Allah Akbar and calling for jihad and Muslim armies and so on. 
Uh, but I think the point you make there is is really important, which is that what is referred to as the Islamo-left or whatever term one might use, it's actually a much deeper connection taking place. And it's almost as if, as, as you say, Hamas has become the militant wing of Western self-loathing, you know, the, the armed wing of a kind of uh, a degraded identity politics that originates here in the West. I think that's a really interesting point. I, I, I wanted to ask you about your changing, possibly your changing approach to the question of Israel and the Middle East. Now, some listeners will be aware that you come from the anti-imperialist left. Um, traditionally, you were against Western intervention around the world in various different guises and against imperial armies and in the imperial subjugation of nations. And as part of that, I, I'm pretty sure that you were one of the people who in the past may have been critical of Israel. You know, in the 70s and 80s, when there were very strong left-wing critiques of the state of Israel and what it was doing in relation to the Palestinian people and so on. Is that right? And if it is, what has changed for you over the past 30, 40 years? Uh, you know, uh, what kind of journey have you been on where you may have been someone who would have been a bit more openly critical of Israel to someone who now is deeply, deeply concerned about the hatred for Israel to such an extent that I know you feel you take Israel's side on these questions? Well, you know, I mean, it, it is the case that uh, I've kind of gone through a, a certain intellectual and, and uh, emotional development, moral development in relation to Israel in many ways because the world has changed. So, you know, uh, there was a time, for example, when I was very critical of, of some of the actions that Israel took. I, I always felt that, you know, what would be the best solution would be a, a Jewish Arab state there, you know, sort of where you try to create a, a kind of common common ground and create common institutions, which fairly swiftly became clear to me was not really kind of possible. And, and therefore, I remember at a certain point uh, waking up in the morning and telling myself that uh, I, I was no longer uh, an anti-Zionist, but I was an anti-anti-Zionist, which was very uh, a very interesting development because at that point I began to see anti-Zionism uh, and anti-Israeli sentiment as being far worse than, than any, anything else that I've experienced. And so at that point, I began to realize that, that the criticism of Israel had, had a very kind of mendacious agenda behind it. And the agenda behind it was one that simply refused to recognize the fact that whatever you thought about Israel, at least Israel provided a safe haven for Jews in a world where uh, that did not exist. And I remember at the time people were saying, but Frank, why do you want there to be a safe haven for Jews? I mean, it's, you know, it's safe for Jews everywhere in the world. And of course, that may have been the case a while back, but certainly nobody would argue today in the 21st century that uh, Jews are living a, a safe life in France or in Germany or in Belgium or you know, large parts of the world. So that was like the second stage that I kind of went through. And the third stage was when it became very clear to me that uh, anti-Semitism, which was relatively on the margins of society for a whole period of time in the 50s, 60s, the 70s, you know, maybe even the bit of the 80s, had suddenly spread its wings and uh, as was gaining traction because of the influence of these movements we discussed earlier on, the Islamist movements in Europe, the identity politics uh, advocates as well. So. At that point, when it became very clear to me that anti-Semitism had re-emerged re re as a potent political force that, in a sense, was bringing together all these different uh, sort of movements, you know, I, I drew the conclusion that um, the only legitimate position that one could adopt was to unconditionally support Israel. Because what was at issue here, it wasn't just simply uh, an abstract state of Israel, but what was at issue here was the very viability of, of Judaism or, or, or the survival of the Jewish people. That's very well put. And just to press you on that before we move on to the last couple of questions, I, I agree with what you've just said. And I want to ask you how you think Israel's predicament stands at the moment. So it's always seemed to me, well, certainly over the past couple of decades, that Israel has two problems. Firstly, it's under siege by increasingly Islamist movements to, that have an apocalyptic loathing off the Jews, essentially, not, not only the Jewish state. So it's under siege from groups that would get rid of it if they could. But it's also under a kind of 
moral siege by correct thinkers of the West who who surround it, not necessarily in a militaristic or physical sense, but certainly in intellectual sense, you know, and and are constantly pointing their influential finger at Israel and damning it as a, a uniquely barbaric state. So it seems to be subjected to these two sieges, which is going to have an incredibly negative impact, I would say, on a nation and its in its understanding of itself. Um, so what do you think Israel can do to try and break out of that? I mean, right now it's engaged in um, war in Gaza. It's chasing down Hamas. As you know, everything it does is described as a war crime. If it drops bombs in Gaza, that's genocide. If it suggests that population moves first before it drops a bomb, that's also genocide because it's the crime of forced transfer. You know, everything it does is being um, judged by Western observers as as being uniquely criminal, even in theatres of war, is what Israel does is worse than what everyone else does. So it's under attack, not only physically from Hamas and other terrorist groups, but also from a West that has lost faith in itself and which takes that out on the state of Israel in large part. So what is Israel, what do you think its prospects are militarily, politically? Are you worried about the future of Israel? How do you feel about that? Well, I am worried, uh, particularly because of the fact that uh, the West is a very unreliable partner for Israel at the moment. And the West itself is undergoing a, a tremendous crisis of self-belief in terms of you know where it's at. And therefore, I think Israel would be foolish to imagine that it can count on the support of uh, the United States or NATO or any of the Western countries in the, into the indefinite future. I think it may well be the case that there are very strong, powerful forces that feel that when push comes to shove, their interest lies in realignment towards uh, other Middle Eastern partners rather than Israel. So that's a huge problem that I'm sure that Israeli government and people are are really aware of. And therefore, they need to have very pragmatic, diplomatic, you know, sort of uh, reasoning because you have to be able to play off different players if you're going to survive. And unfortunately, you know, so uh, that triangle between China, Russia and the West uh, at the moment, it looks unfavorable for Israel. Beforehand, they could, for example, Israel had, a, had, attempt, had an attempt to have a strong degree of rapprochement with China, and China was very willing. But now, because of what's happened, China has been very loath to come out in support of Israel. It hasn't uh, denounced Hamas, for example. So there's a lot of diplomatic games to be played. Uh, my main worry, as it happened, is within Israel itself, because I think that as long as Israelis are united, as long as there's a strong sense of, you know, we're in it together, that Israel can always manage to survive and to, you know, even under difficult circumstances, kind of carry on. But if Israel becomes divided in the way that it began to show early on this year, and you have the emergence of a very polarized society, then Israel itself can become subject to the kind of uh, pressures that exist, uh, particularly from identity politics within the West itself. And one of the things that I worry about is when I see what I call California values getting the hold within Israeli societies and then creating a kind of sense of uh, impotence or could create a sense of impotence. So to me, the really important thing is to remember that uh, Israel needs to stick together, Israelis. And there are a lot of precedents for this. I often think that the biggest tragedy of the Jewish people historically was when the temple was destroyed. You know, sort of when, when you look back in history and when the Romans managed to conquer Israel. And that was in part not just simply because of the overall power of the Roman legions, but the very fact that different Jewish sects were at each other's throats and were aligning ourselves with different kind of parties. And it was very much the divisions within, within that Jewish uh, sort of uh, society uh, that, that was partially responsible for the downfall and the whole destruction of the temple. I know it goes back a long time, but I always think of that in relation to the current era uh, and why it is important that Israel manages to find the cultural resources to stick together. Because at the end of the day, they got nobody else they can rely on but themselves. Yeah, I think um, California values are problematic for every society they arrive in, including the UK, but they are potentially existentially problematic and potentially devastating for for a country like Israel. As you say, there are historical precedents in Israel and and Jewish society for 
how internal tensions mixed together with external threats can really cause a huge problem. Okay, Frank, just two more quick questions before I let you go. I want to ask you about the prospects for Jews in Europe, because on the one hand, I, I assume one wouldn't want to fear monger and, you know, suggest that Jewish people pack their bags and move elsewhere, although it's not clear where, where they would go. But on the other hand, I think we have to be pretty serious, don't we, about the problems in, in European society. I mean, you mentioned France and Belgium earlier. We know that there have been anti-Semitic acts of terrorism in France, numerous ones over the past few years. We've seen the growth of a pretty open anti-Semitism in the UK, in Belgium, in, in Germany, a, a synagogue in Berlin was firebombed about a week ago. And these problems have been growing for some time, but it seems likely that they're going to be exacerbated by the fallout from the 7th of October and particularly by the response of people in the West who ought to know better to those events. How bad do you think the anti-Semitism problem is going to get? And and what is the best way, what's the best way for people like us, Jews and non-Jews who are worried about this problem, what's the best way for us to deal with it? I think it's very important that we are heard uh, I'm, I was very disappointed that uh, there's, you know, the kind of reaction you get in Europe is the one where, for example, you close down, you know, schools so that, you know, that the kids are, are, are kept at home in case they get attacked. Uh, I don't think that's a good sign. You know, that's not how you want to uh, organize Jewish schools. Uh, I think it's important that Jews make a, an attempt to not to disappear from public, not to kind of, you know, kind of melt into the general um, you know, sort of public milieu, but to make sure there's a Jewish presence within uh, European nations and, and, and basically that we find uh, people, both Jews and non-Jews, who are prepared to uh, give voice to the needs of Jewish societies and, and, and express their views in an unambiguous way so that people understand that there are some important issues at stake. And, you know, if, we can, if that can be done effectively, then I'm sure that there, there is still the sizable minority of individuals who are prepared to, uh, in a sense, march arm in arm with, with their Jewish colleagues. So key thing is to stand up and be counted, but also not to give in to the sense of isolation, but to do what we can to break out of that isolation. So that you're building bridges, you're building coalitions. Uh, because there are, I mean, I know even in Brussels, I was really pleased, for example, to find that um, numerous parliamentarians are feeling very strongly about this. They they know what happened to Jews in, in the past, and they really are committed to not allowing it to happen again. So somehow we've got to mobilize. Okay, at the moment we're a minority of, of, of in society, but it's it's a minority that's, that's sufficiently substantial that can gain a bit of traction. So I think it's important that we don't simply uh, adopt a pessimistic, keeping our heads down kind of approach because that would be disastrous. But instead, take, you know, take the moral high ground and make sure that we heard and do whatever we can to build bridges and, and get people to um, watch our backs and, and, and fight alongside ourselves. Yeah, I think the, um, the October declaration that was released this week, which is a statement of support for British Jews and against anti-Semitism and against Hamas, has been very important on that front. And I know you signed it and I signed it and, and Tom Slater signed it. And it's good to see lots of public voices behind that statement. And it's, it's getting a lot of traction and, and a lot of support. OK, Frank, my last question for you is, is on what is at stake in all of this? Now, it's clear from talking to you on this podcast that there are different levels of what's at stake, you know, so there's the Hamas versus Israel conflict. And I'm pretty clear about what side I'm going to take in that. And it's not going to be the side of the deranged, genocidal, anti-Semitic terrorists, that's for sure. There's also the question of, you know, what side do you take if uh, on a, a, a demonstration in London or a demonstration in New York where you have self-styled decolonizers on one side who have been seem completely immune to the horrors visited upon Israel. And then on the other side, you have Jewish people in those cities worried about what's being said on the streets and what's been done on the streets. And I know which side I'm taking on on, on that clash as well. But it's bigger even than those things, isn't it? In terms of, you know, very often when there is an upsurge in anti-Semitism or those kinds of problems, it's often reflective of a moral discombobulation, to put it politely, a kind of a crisis of reason, a crisis of enlightenment, a crisis of values that Western civilization ought to be taking very seriously. 
these things often go hand in hand. So looking at, you know, taking it a step even further back, what do you think is, is at stake? What has been revealed by the, the, the colossal terror of 7th of October in terms of what is at stake in our societies? Well, I think the, uh, particularly the response in the West to the barbaric acts of 7th of October really show you that there's been a convergence of opinion among a section of society who are totally estranged from the nations and the cultures they were born into, who regard the uh, legacy of Western civilization as something that they're ashamed of, something they want to leave behind, who in a sense want to uh, uh, almost fundamentally break from all the values and norms that have defined, for example, the, the values of Europe, whether it's the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, the Judeo-Christian tradition, Greek philosophy, these are values and these are, these are experiences that they actually uh, have problems with and, 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 and very often denounce and, and, and attack. And therefore, I think what I see here happening is that the kind of people that have in any case been trying to dig the grave of Western culture, Western civilization, have now found a, a new uh, w- new way of, of, of kind of carrying on with that act. And almost without thought, almost spontaneously, they've joined an alliance with, with Hamas and with, with those uh, different terrorist organizations within the Middle East. So I think what is really done is it demonstrated that the kind of cultural wars that are being fought within our society are not just simply about words. They're not just simply about... Uh, innocent statements, you know, debates and arguments, they are fundamentally have a, an impact that can have very significant and very dangerous uh, physical consequences. And we have to remember that uh, the same people that are now celebrating the death of Jews in southern Israel are the same people that will be celebrating if they get a chance and, and, and dancing over the bodies of people killed in Europe. I think that it's important to realize that when you have asylum seekers in the island of Lapidus, the minute they arrive in Greece and they hear about what happens on October the 7th, jumping for joy, when they come into Belgium or Britain or France or any of these societies, they will act upon those views and they will, they will have hor- horrible consequences for European societies, just as it has had in Israel. So we have to remember that the war in the Middle East is gradually becoming internalized within Europe itself. And uh, we need to be prepared for that and not get caught unaware in the way that Israelis did on the 7th of October. Frank, thank you very much. Pleasure. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.